It's good to be with you guys. If you were here last week, we jumped into the book of Hosea. It's in the Old Testament. Um, if you're looking for it in your Bible, it's between Daniel and Joel. And this week I finished one of the books that I've been reading to get ready to preach through this book of the Bible. Uh, I read some commentaries and then I read a book by a lady named Francine Rivers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Francine Rivers was a lady that used to write a bunch of romance novels and met Jesus. And she's like, I'm gonna retell the story of Hosea and Gomer as a romance novel in the Old West. And for almost 20 years in my marriage, my wife has been like, you gotta read that. You gotta read that. It's actually really good. And I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but I judge that book by its cover. Full on romance novel, lady in a flowing red dress and like really swirly script, redeeming love. And I've always avoided that book. And then I read it and just cried the whole time just cry like a little baby, Um, probably brought everlasting shame on the life of my son by reading that book in public. He's like, why are you crying? I'm reading this book. (laughs) The love of God is so great. Uh, So that kind of gives you an idea of the kind of book of the Bible that we're walking through. It's a book called Hosea, and it's a crazy book. It, It really is about a scandalous love story. And it's about a scandalous love story, not just between a guy named Hosea, who was a prophet, and his wife named Gomer, who was a prostitute, but it's really the story about God's love for his people. And it's a story that's full of tragedy. It's full of loss. It's full of all kinds of hindrances and moments where their love seems to be coming to an end. And it's a story of God's faithfulness that turns the tragedy into a story of hope. Uh, Last week, we summed up the book by going through chapter one, And so if you weren't here last week, I want to get you caught up so that you're not wondering what the heck we're talking about. Let me read two verses that sum this story up. Hosea 1, starting in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Uh, So in case you're wondering what this story is about, he uses the term whoredom three times. In the Hebrew, he uses it four times because this is a story of a husband who's pursuing, loving, and engaging with a wife who's not engaging in prostitution because of external circumstances that sort of demand her to do that, to put food on the table for her kids. Uh, This is a story of a lady that just is wired and hell-bent on not being faithful to her husband. And I think that this book is really, really timely for our church. And I think it's really important for those of you guys that are not yet followers of Jesus or those of you guys that have walked away from the church because you got banged up due to sort of Midwestern Bible Belt religion. I think this book is really helpful because this book helps us figure out what kind of story the rest of the Bible is. Um, If you're a geek like me and you like a lot of Tolkien, like I... I'll get you guys, I'll let you guys in just only so far into my nerddom. I won't take you into the deep things of nerddom. We won't talk about the Silmarillion because then I won't have any friends. Um, but I'll just, I'll just quote a little bit. This is, this is Sam DeFrodo and he says, I wonder what kind of tale we've fallen into. That's actually a really good question because we're people of story. We're, we're people that want to make sense of our stories. We're people that try to make sense out of the story of the world. And it's really hard to try to figure out like, what kind of story is my life? 
And what kind of story is being told through human history? Is it a story of chaos? Is it a tragedy? Is it just nothing but random acts of violence and moments of respite? Is it the story of just technology? Is it a story where we're just kind of looking down the barrel at nothing and meaninglessness, trying to carve out a life in the midst of terror? Like what kind of story are we in? And the answer, according to Christian scripture, the answer is at the heart of the story that you're caught up in and that I'm caught up in is actually romance. It really is romance. It's, it's the story of love. It's the story of a God who can be described in all kinds of ways. He's just, he's holy, he's powerful, he's mighty. But there's only one word that gets to the core essence of who God is. And that's that God is love. And despite our repeated rejections and the way that we run from him and the way that our hearts are just hardwired to love anything and everything except him, the story of the Christian faith is all about God's pursuit of human beings because of love, because of love. And that's why we're walking through the book of Hosea. And what's gonna happen today is we dive into chapter two and this is what we're gonna do for the next eight weeks or so. We're just gonna kind of go chapter by chapter so you can read ahead, uh, maybe not read it out loud to your kids unless you're ready for those conversations, but you, you can read You can read this story and you can be in the story with us as we try to step back to the 8th century BC and figure out what that has to do with us. Today in chapter two, here's what's gonna happen. The lines between Gomer's adultery and Israel's idolatry, her adultery and Israel's idolatry, those lines are gonna blur and you're gonna get a little bit confused about who is God even talking to? Is he talking to Gomer about her breaking of her marriage vows by taking other lovers than her husband? Or is he talking to Israel and addressing Israel's repeated rebuffing of God to worship the gods of Canaan? And the reason that the line blurs so much is because what God's trying to tell us in chapter two is that all worship, all worship of anything, a made up God, a created thing, money, sex, career, your kids, the ideal marriage, Whatever it is, the worship of anything other than the God that made you actually is, in the purest sense, spiritual adultery. The line between Gomer and Israel, it blurs, and you can't really figure out what's happening in this moment because God's saying, hey, what Gomer did to her husband, her infidelity, is what my people do to me when they worship other gods. It's infidelity. It's infidelity. So today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna walk through this story pretty quickly. We're gonna read a bit of chapter two, and then we're gonna look at three things. We're gonna try to get to the heart of spiritual adultery or the worship of idols. What's the heart of that? Uh, I think probably a lot of people in this room would think, man, there's no way that I would worship an idol. Even if you're not a Christian, you're like, man, that's for other cultures. That's for old sort of tribal religions. Like I would never worship an idol. So we're gonna talk about what is the heart of spiritual adultery or idolatry. And then we're gonna look soberly at the heartache of it. What's gonna happen in your soul? What's gonna happen in your relationships if you put your deepest longings on anything in this world other than God. And and then we're going to get down to the good news because this is a story where you keep going tragedy and hope, tragedy and hope, tragedy and hope. And we're going to end today with a lot of hope. We're going to look at hope for Gomers and hope for Israel and hope for you and me. So here we go. We're diving in chapter two, verse five. What's the heart of spiritual adultery? It's summed up here. For their mother has played the whore. Israel or Gomer or both, keep reading. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. 
For she said, I will go after my lovers, my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. I'm gonna go after my lovers because my lovers are gonna get me some things that I need in life, some things that everybody needs in life if they're gonna have a good life, a secure life and a happy life. And what I want you to see as we talk about this is that there's the physical and the spiritual that are happening all over this book. And the physical is showing us some things that are true about the spiritual. Why does Gomer keep cheating on her husband? Why does Israel keep cheating on God? Well, the lovers promise to give them some things. Baal and Gomer's lovers say that if you love me, if you worship me, first of all, I'll give you bread and I'll give you water. Now, um, we're people that are created to be bodies that get hungry and get thirsty, right? We're people that get hungry and thirsty. We We need bread to sustain us. We need water to quench our thirst. And in Gomer's quest for these other lovers, the lovers keep saying to her, hey, your hunger is gonna get filled in my relationship with you. I'm gonna satisfy you. Now, this is not just true of our bodies. This is true of our souls. Human beings are really thirsty creatures. We're thirsty. We're full of longing. We're full of desire. Um, If you'll get really quiet, and I know that's a dangerous thing to do in our culture, but if you'll get really quiet and you look inside, more often than not, what you're gonna find is this, this aching desire to be made full, to be satisfied, to be quenched. So these lovers promise to bring bread and water to satisfy. In addition, these lovers promise to give wool and flax, wool and flax. Um, Just in case you're not a fashion designer, what does that mean? Wool and flax? Well, wool was made to make winter clothing to keep you warm. And flax was all about making summer clothing, linen to keep you warm, to keep you covered. So here's what the lovers say. Hey, you're naked and you need to be covered. And if you love me, if you come to me, Baal or lovers of Gomer, I'm gonna cover you. I'll cover your nakedness, meaning I'll remove your shame. I'll keep you warm, keep you warm. The very first thing that humans being, human beings did in the beginning when we turned away from God and started worshiping creation is we actually realized that we were really naked. We're naked. Now, that's not just physical. The reality is we're, we're naked and we need to be covered, meaning we know that there's something really off with us. So we pretend, we play games, right? We create images uh, of ourselves. We want other people to buy into. We're all personal PR managers. We think through with our clothes and what we drive and where we live and the way we talk and the crowd that we run in. How can I build an image that's gonna make me seem acceptable to the people that I want to love me and affirm me? We all do that, admit it. And what these lovers say to Gomer and what these Baals say to Israel is, hey, I'll cover you up and I'll keep you warm. Um, in addition, the lovers offer oil and drink, oil and drink. And this is really a big, big picture, big metaphor. Oil throughout the old covenant and in the ancient war- world, oil meant a lot of things. Like it was a part of just sort of health. Um, you would anoint yourself with oil. It was a part of making sure that in celebrations, you were prepared for the celebration. Uh, if you were out in the dusty Middle East, oil was about making sure that you didn't get like ashy and dried out, that your hair was pretty, that your skin was pretty. Oil was about celebration. It was about gladness and health. And drink here is not talking about water. Uh, my, my apologies to all my Southern Baptist friends. Drink here is talking about wine. It's talking about wine and and wine on the good side. When the Bible talks about wine from the positive, wine was made to do what? To gladden the heart of men, 
Now, certainly drunkenness and addiction, the Bible talks about that, but wine, when it's used rightly, wine's about celebration. It's about joy. It's about happiness. You open the bottle of wine when you want to celebrate life and save your life. So here's what the lovers are saying. The gladness and the health that you're looking for, I can give you that. I can give you that. Come to my bed. I'll give you the gladness that you need. I'll be the one that gives you the wine and the oil. So the lovers, the lovers make big promises. Here's what they say. The lovers say, by the way, I got to move this. This is a paperclip and I'm messing with it with my OCD. I can't stop fiddling with the paperclip. Thank you, Justin Coffey. Here's what the lovers say. Apologize, that was a little excursus into my scattered mind. Um, the lovers, the lovers say, I'll satisfy you. The lovers say, I'll fill you. The lovers say, I'll cover you. The lovers say, I'll complete you. Now listen, it's easy to think that worship is just something that we do with rituals. And only certain kinds of people worship. Like there's two kinds of people. There's religious people, there's non-religious people. Religious people do the rituals of worship. They go to temples, they go to church, they keep feasts, they keep holidays. Those are the religious. And then there's the nuns, right? And the nuns are growing like crazy in America. Uh, We say, we're not religious, we're just what? Spiritual, we're spiritual. And so the nuns are growing like crazy. And we kind of got these two categories of people that we think exist, the religious people and the non-religious people. Here's what Hosea wants you to see is that these lovers and these idols are telling us that there really aren't two kinds of people, worshipers and non-worshipers. What the Bible wants you to see is that worship is actually so hardwired into what it means to be an image bearer. You can't help but worship. You're always worshiping. You were made to worship. And the problem with idolatry is that idolatry is aiming that worship, that need for ultimate satisfaction, that need for ultimate meaning, that need for ultimate security, ultimate comfort. Worship is pointing those needs at anything or anyone other than the God that can really meet those needs. So spiritual adultery and idol worship are actually the same thing. Martin Luther talks about worship like this in his catechism. It's helpful. Here's what he says. A God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. So where do you expect your good from? And where do you go to when things aren't good to be the answer to what's not good? That's a God. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him from the whole heart. And I've often said that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. If your faith and trust be right, then is your God also true. And on the other hand, if your trust be false and wrong, then you have not the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. That now I say upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. So listen, it would be possible to keep all the rituals of a religion, to be a good fill in the blank, Baptist, Methodist, Hindu, Muslim, fill in the blank with any organized religion, it would be possible to keep all the trappings of those religions and still actually be worshiping other gods that aren't even a part of the religion that you claim to worship. Why? Because worship is really about placing your desire and your trust 
for meaning, goodness, life, and comfort in something or someone, and we're always doing that. So if you're a Midwestern Bible Belt Christian and you read the book of Hosea like a lot of people do, and they walk away feeling really proud, like a lot of people do, because that's what Jesus is all about, prideful Christians, right? No, not Jesus. He's not about that. But there's sadly a lot of people that would read the book of Hosea and they'd walk away and they'd, they'd feel justified and say, man, thank you, God, that I'm not like Gomer. Thank you, God, that I'm not like Gomer. Thank you, God, that I am not, that I'm not a whore that chases after other lovers. I'm faithful. Thank you, God, that I'm not drawn to other lovers. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the children of Israel that worship Baal. I'm really glad that I'm doing great because I only worship God and I go to church a lot. Well, the problem is that you might just be pulling the wool over your own eyes because what God wants you to see in this book is that you and me as human beings have a whole lot in common with Gomer and Israel. In fact, this is not just the story of stuff that happened in the 8th century BC in an agrarian culture. This is the story of what happens in the hearts of people all the time. David Foster Wallace was a phenomenal writer, sadly killed himself. And uh, to my knowledge, David Foster Wallace never became a Christian, but he's on to some chunks of truth in a lot of his writings. And he's one of those people that I don't think he knew Jesus, but he really knew the way that human beings worship idols. And he said at a commencement address, these words, which are really helpful. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or a wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. See, I think what Scripture's arguing for, and it's not an absurd argument. It's an argument that bears out in our own lives, in our own relationships. What Scripture's arguing for is that the core thing that got broken in the beginning is that God that created us to enjoy creation but worship only Him has been exchanged in a relationship where we now go to creation to do the things only God can do for us. And we all worship Money and sex and relationship and career and morality and politics and a thousand other things. We go to those things as lovers to give us our bread and our drink, our oil, our flax, our wool, to keep us comforted, to keep us nourished, to make us healthy, to help us live. There's a profound and tragic irony about the way that we worship all this stuff. Here's the profound and tragic irony. Look at two verses together. They're flip sides that you got to see in contrast. Verse five and verse eight. She said, I will go after my lovers 
who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Why does she keep cheating on Hosea? Why does Israel keep cheating on God? Because these things are offered by the lovers and gods. But here's the flip side and the irony. Look at verse eight. This is God now speaking. And he says, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Here's the irony. We keep going to all this stuff to name us and satisfy. And, and by the way, look, look at me and get this. It's not that all those things in themselves are necessarily bad. Working a job is not bad. And if God gives you a spouse, that's not bad. Marriage can glorify God. And having kids is not bad. The Bible says that they're gifts from God. And being able to be blessed, if God's given you money, like he didn't want you to feel guilty. He wants you to feel grateful and to use his money, use money for his glory. Like these things are not in themselves necessarily bad. But the problem is we keep thinking that they can do things for us that they just can't do. And the irony of all of it is that meaning, real satisfaction, real joy, real identity, real covering, real warmth, real comfort is not found in all of these lovers that promise big things and can't deliver. It's really found in our relationship with the God that actually created us. And just because you've seen versions of Christianity that were all just about a set of rules to keep, to be prideful and feel good about yourself, Don't think that that's the story of the Bible because what God is going after aggressively for you and me is delight. Scripture says in his presence is fullness of joy. He wants you to actually drink deeply of the one God, the one lover that can satisfy and that's him. And this leads us to the heartache of spiritual adultery, this confused pursuit of ultimate meaning in all these lovers. Here's the heartache of it. It starts in verse six. Here's what God says. Therefore, I will hedge her way with thorns. I'll build a wall around her so that she can't find her paths, her adulterous paths, her idolatrous paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She'll seek them, but not find them. She'll say to them, then she shall say, "Um, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. She did not know it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil that she lavished on, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which she used for Baal. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. Like, hey, I love my people so much. This is God talking. I love my people so much. I'm actually going to both actively and passively resist their repeated attempts at finding things in these lovers that they're not going to be able to find. I'm going to actively resist it, meaning I'm going to like hedge her way in with thorns, meaning God's saying, hey, I'm not always going to help you get the things that you think you have to have to be happy because it's just going to lead you further down the rabbit trail of blowing your life up when you put all your confidence in those things. And I'm going to passively resist her, meaning uh, in one sense, the scariest kind of God's judgment is when he says, hey, if you really want those gods and those lovers, go for it. Go for it. In fact, one of the severest kindnesses of God is his willingness to allow us to be miserable in our pursuit of gods that aren't God. It's a kindness of God. 
that that doesn't satisfy, that the counterfeits don't really get to the deepest needs of our lives. It's a, it's a blessing of God. It's a grace of God. And nonetheless, there's a tragedy with all these lovers and all these gods that aren't God. And the tragedy is summed up in verse three. I will strip her naked and make her as on the day she was born and make her like a what? A wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Stop here for just a second. Man, if you haven't read the Old Testament, here's something you need to know. One of the things that God keeps saying in the Old Testament is that his people are not gonna be like a wilderness. They're not gonna be like a desert. They're not gonna be like a parched land. God keeps saying that his people are gonna be like a garden. They're gonna be watered by him. They're gonna be fruitful. Uh, they're, not gonna be, they're not gonna be like a land that nothing grows in. They're actually gonna be more like a vineyard where the grapes are just bursting and you can't wait for that year's vintage. God's people, because of their relationship with him, are gonna be so full of life that they're just fruitful in every way. What God says tragically here is that the outcome of spiritual adultery The outcome of idolatry is that the opposite of God's heart for us happens. Instead of being like a vineyard that's full of fruit, we become like a desert that's full of death. Instead of having our thirst quenched, our throats are parched. I don't know how far you've gotten down the road to get to the lovers and the gods that you think are gonna satisfy you, because there's all kinds of steps and phases in in these relationships with our lovers. Uh, There's like the initial steps of infatuation. That first moment that you're like, oh, here's the thing I've been looking for. And that step feels awesome. It feels amazing. It's like first love. It's like, oh man, now I know this is what I've been made for. This is is the thing that's going to satisfy me. Fill in the blank, whatever that is, like the perfect spouse, finding the one, stumbling upon your capacity to make a lot of money. And you're like, oh, sweet. Now I know what I'm on the planet for. Or the dream of like retirement, the perfect retirement. Or you get into the gym and you're like, man, this is where it's at. I'm I'm getting healthy. Now I really know where life's going to be and joy's going to be. There's that first step and you're like, oh, this is awesome. This lover is amazing. This lover is going to give me my food and my drink, my oil in my wine, my wool in my flax. This is gonna go so well for me. And then the honeymoon starts to end, right? And you start getting a little further down the road and now it's like, oh man, I'm really having to squeeze this thing real hard to get any juice out of it. It's not really working. My return on my investment is starting to get less and less and less. Those things I thought would happen to me once I had the perfect family, wife and 2.5 kids, those things aren't happening. I'm the same person. And this happens in the church all the time in religious ways. Like I planted a church and thought, man, if I could just plant a church and God bless it and it grow, I'll be okay. (laughs) I'll be okay. I won't feel so banged up inside. I won't feel so much shame about the things that have happened in my life. I won't feel like, uh, like I'm so alone in the world. I'll plant a church and that church will make everything meaningful. And then I planted the church and God grew it. And I was like, hey, this is weird. Stuff still sucks inside my soul. This is really a bummer because it was a lot of work. And now I got what I worked for and it's really hadn't made the inside of my 
heart, my, my soul, the deeper part, it hasn't made me like a garden. I still feel like a desert. That's what David Foster Wallace was saying. Now he includes all kinds of stuff that's crazy because it's not just created things if you worship them that will murder you. It's also made up things. Any made up thing, any created thing that we worship to answer us is going to leave you naked and it's going to leave you parched. And I just want to say, man, like there's not, there's not the good guys and the bad guys in this story. Nobody in this story gets to be Hosea except for God. You're not Hosea. I'm not Hosea. You're Gomer and I'm Gomer. And we're so dumb and our memories are so short that we get done with one lover that left us bleeding on the side of the road and another lover shows up and you're like, oh, wow, it's time for prom. <laughs> but they keep doing the same thing to us. And I'm, I'm trying to bring some levity so I don't cry because it's a treadmill and it's exhausting and it's not leading to better lives. It's leading to really shallow, dry, brittle lives. And America's not, my friends, becoming less religious. Our pantheon of gods is just changing. So what do we do with this? Like, what do we do with this? Where, where, where does God want us to go with this? What is this, this judgment of, I'm going to kill her with thirst? Is that the last word? Is God's romance with his people going to end in divorce? Again, God in his mercy does what we would not do. We would be right to get out of this relationship. God does something really different though. Look at Hosea chapter two, verse 14. Therefore, that's a shocking therefore. It's actually pointing to all the things that she's done that haven't been faithful. Here's what God's saying, because she hasn't been faithful. Here's what I'll do. I will allure her, allure her. It's not a word we use a lot today, right? I will allure her. What does that mean? I'll entice, I'll romance, I'll pursue, I'll woo her. And I'll bring her into the wilderness and I'll speak tenderly to her. Can we just admit that the last thing we would expect God to say to Israel at this point or Hosea to say to Gomer is anything at all that sounds like tenderness. We would expect ranting. We would expect accusations. We would expect curses to flow out of the mouth of God. And instead, he's just so different than us. He's like, hey, here's what I'm gonna do. Because you've been a whore, because you've had all these lovers, because you worship anything and everything but me and you'll sleep with anything in the world that moves, here's what I'll do. I'll just, I'll just woo you. I'll just pursue you harder. I'll just go above and beyond to capture your heart. Here's what's so amazing. The place that he's going to woo her is in the very place of thirst. Did you catch that? Where is he going to allure her? Where is he going to lead her to? The wilderness. The wilderness. He's going to speak tenderly to her in the very place of thirst. And this is a really big deal. What this means is that when Jesus stands up in his ministry, it's this moment where he's at this feast and he stands up and breaks the, the solemn silence. He does something that was really inappropriate. Jesus did a lot of inappropriate things. This is one of them. Jesus stands up and he yells out with a loud voice. He says, hey, is anybody thirsty? Let him come to me. Let him come to me and rivers of living water will flow out of him. What's Jesus saying? Hey, in the place 
of the wilderness in the very place of thirst, that thirst is where I wanna meet you and satisfy you with the only water that's really drink that's gonna help your soul. So what's the, what's the message of the church to religious people that have religion and not a deep relationship with God? It's, hey, you're thirsty, come and drink. And what is the message of the church to secular people that worship the God of independence or the God of money or the God of career? It's, you are so thirsty, come and drink. If you're thirsty, you're not disqualified from a relationship with Jesus. You're actually qualified. Therefore, therefore, have you loved a thousand other gods? Have you had a thousand lovers that have left you in shambles? That doesn't disqualify you from the love of God that actually sets you up and prepares you to experience his love. He wants to meet you. And he wants to change his relationship with his people in a really profound way. Look at verse 16. And on that day, declares the Lord, you will call me what? My husband. And you will no longer call me my Baal. I want to give you this as we close because this cuts really deep to a lot of the ways in which we think we have an idea of relationship with God that's really more of dead man-centered religion. Here's what God says to his people. You have this relationship with Baal and that relationship is really transactional, right? Here, here's what people would do in ancient agrarian culture with Baal. They would go to the temple. They would sleep with the temple prostitute. They would make some sacrifices. And in the midst of those rituals and those rites, here's what they were doing. They were invoking the favor of Baal to make their land productive. Baal was a fertility god. So as they worship Baal in the temple, here's what they were saying. Baal's a necessary evil. Baal is a means to an end. Nobody went to the temples of Baal because they really wanted to like have a personal relationship with Baal. That wasn't the point. They went to the temple of Baal because Baal promised to be able to make their grain grow, make their crops really thrive. Baal said, I'll make the sunshine. I'll make the rainfall come to me, give me these little sacrifices and then I'll throw down for you and it'll be really great and you'll get all the stuff you need to be happy. And here's what God is saying to his people. You know what I need to do for my people? I need to give them a profound shift in their relationship with me where they stop treating me like I'm Baal. Because there's a way to think that you're worshiping God, but your worship of God looks more like the worship of Baal. And the way we do that is whenever we reduce God to being a means to an end, which I know never happens in this part of the world. Never, right? We've never told single people, worship Jesus with all your heart. Seek Jesus and he'll get you that, he'll get you the one. Especially if you, if you stay a virgin, you're guaranteed he's gonna get you the one. And then once you get the one, ooh, then you're going to be so happy. Can I just maybe interject that that sounds surprisingly like the worship of Baal to me? Why? Because it's just making God a means to an end. What do you really need for a good life? Not God and maybe singleness. No, you need God plus spouse to be happy. Or worship God and your kids will be awesome. They'll be awesome. Parents worship God and they pay their tithes and then they get a kid that rebels and they're like, 
shaking their fist at God. How dare you let this happen to me? I worshiped you. I, I did my part of the bargain. Who the hell do you think you are to not keep your part of the bargain up? Sounds like Baal worship. It's a means to an end. And I've done this. When Bible reading and prayer and worship start to become just boxes we got to check so that God will do the things for us that we really want him to do and meet us and give us all the things we really want. Here's what we're doing. We're confusing God with Baal. God does not want a relationship with his people that's a transactional relationship where he's a means to an end. Here's what God wants. He wants to be the end. Christ, the preeminent one, the fullness of God, the beginning and the end. He doesn't want a relationship with you where he's a rabbit's foot or a genie. Here's what he describes his relationship with his people like, on that day, you will call me my husband. You don't have to let that make you all nervous if you're a guy. And it's not, I mean, the church has done two really dangerous things with this. They've gone into bridal mysticism that's overly romanticized relationship with Jesus that gets creepy for dudes, real creepy. It's like, I don't really want to sing a song about brushing Jesus' hair back over his ear. And I'm not real comfortable with that. The church has gone too far in that direction at times. But, but let me also say, the church has also, it's also gone too far in the other direction. When people read the Song of Solomon, they're like, this has nothing to do with God and his people. It's just about human marriage. I'm like, you're an idiot. All marriage has to do with God and his people. All marriage. What God's saying here is he wants a relationship with his people that's not marked by just duty. It's marked by intimacy and delight. Where God's not a means to an end to get all the stuff we need to be happy, but where our deepest satisfaction, identity, and joy is found in God. This is what Jesus died for. This is what Jesus pays for. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. It's God that's gonna remove the bales from the mouths of his people in this text. How does he do that? Well, he drives away lesser lovers with a greater love. If you wanna be able to defeat the whispers of all the lovers that are telling you, I'm where you really need to go for your ultimate whatever fill in the blank, the only way to defeat those lovers is with a greater love. It's a greater love. And that greater love is yours in Jesus, that God has pursued you, purchased you, and actually wants a relationship with you.